Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Jude with Lion of Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our program that we're doing each Sabbath morning. Our program is about the fall feast, and I've already come to you in previous episodes sharing with you about the Feast of Trumpets, about the Day of Atonement, and in this program, we're going to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, in their Hebrew names, they're known as Yom Teruah, the Day of Trumpets, the day Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, then in the case of Tabernacles, it's called Sukkot. Now, this particular holiday that we're going to be talking about is in line with the sequence of prophetic events associated with the return of the Lord. Yom Teruah spoke to us about the resurrection. Day of Atonement spoke to us about the day of the Lord, God's ultimate judgment upon the world. Tabernacles now is going to speak of the season of joy, of celebration with the Messiah in the kingdom. And in fact, Zechariah tells us it will be the first observance that we will do when the Messiah returns. We will enjoy the Feast of Tabernacles with the Messiah there in Jerusalem upon his return. I'm going to repeat to you again the instructions that Moses gave to us for this holiday. We're going to find out that this is described as a seven-day event. However, there's an eighth day. You'll see the language as Moses describes that. We're talking about the holiday that comes in the Hebrew month of Tishri, the seventh month, begins on the 15th day, extends through the 21st day. In Leviticus chapter 23, beginning at verse 33, again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days. The Feast of Booths is the same name for the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the same name for the Feast of Ingathering. The Bible uses all three of those terms to describe this holiday. It says, verse 35, on the first day is a holy convocation, a high Sabbath. You shall do no labor's work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation to present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no labor's work. Did you detect that? The language is there's seven days, and then on the eighth day, there's going to be this other event. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into this program. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings, and each day matter on its own. Besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, besides all your votive and free will offerings which you give to the Lord, on exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. What it's essentially saying is we have these eight days. The first day is a high Sabbath. The eighth day is a high Sabbath. In fact, they refer to the eighth day as the great day of the feast. And they qualify that and describe that eighth day because it's at the end of the cycle of the Levitical holidays as the final great 
holiday before the Lord. And there's very special temple ceremonies that used to be done in there besides what we have described here in the scriptures. And by the way, the scriptures I will share with you has some very specific instructions about the kind of sacrifices that were to be presented in the temple during this festival for eight days. Let me continue on. Verse 40. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourself the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Interestingly enough, on this holiday, as the people would come to Jerusalem in the temple, they were called upon to gather up leafy branches. And they would come, and when they would worship the Lord before, they would wave these branches. I've got a kind of a leafy branch here as an example. And they would all wave these branches, these leafy branches, before the Lord, and it would extend their hands up. And when you saw the whole assembly of the people of them all waving their branches, it was quite a significant event. It was a very participative event. It was joyful event. It's interesting. This feast, this feast of tabernacles we call Sukkot, is called the season of joy. And there's a double commandment that's given in this. And we take note of that when we see that we are to rejoice before the Lord. Well, let's stop and think about it. All the others are solemn and very spiritual events that we take. This one, he says, I want you to come and I want you to have fun before me. God actually commands us to come have fun together. And part of it is this business of bringing these leafy branches. And then they're used to construct the covering over a sukkah. And a sukkah is a tent. It's a hut. It's a booth. You form this out of materials. It's a temporary dwelling place for the seven days. And the covering for it are these leafy branches that you put up on it. And a good sukkah, for those that enjoy that kind of thing, is so that you can be able to look through between the branches and still see an occasional star in the evening. And oh, by the way, when the early rains come, that the rains will sprinkle through and that you have some kind of rain that's associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, cyclic within the climate and moving out of summer into fall, and we get closer and closer to the fall equinox, that's usually when the weather patterns begin to change. We go from the dry months into wet months. And in fact, in the Bible, they're referred to as the early rains. They come after the whole harvest is done. All of the grain harvest has been completed and so forth. The only thing left to be harvesting is some fruit like figs and things like that. And the rains begin to come to water the land and start the cycle again agriculturally. So part of the fun <laughs> is build this sukkah that doesn't quite keep the rain out. And you wave the branches and you get rained on and you have fun before the Lord. Of course, rain and water is God's symbol to us of life. And so he's like shedding life down and rains are likened unto his blessings and so he rains his blessings on us and like a bunch of kids we have fun that's part of what tabernacles is all about 
This is the instruction that is given to us. Verse 41, it continues on to say this, You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. The people that were in Jerusalem when this used to be done, they would build a sukkah up on the roof. They would take materials, build a basic structure. They would put their branches up on top of it, and they would dwell not in their houses, but they'd dwell in booths. Now, travelers who had come in, pilgrims who'd come in from other cities, other lands to celebrate this with the Lord, they too would live in these temporary huts that they would set up. And so all around the temple there in Jerusalem, there would all be these temporary things, tents set up, and they would have the leafy branches, and this was how it was observed. I might add that today, we qualify temporary shelters, sukkahs, and they can include tents from Walmart or wherever you want to get them, and they include Cabello's tents and so forth. Those are the good ones. And they include RVs. And so when people come to observe the Feast of Tabernacles today, it's all about setting up your sukkah. And it's fun going through the camp and seeing what kind of sukkah do you have? What did you do? You go, oh, you got that Cabela's tent. Oh, you got the Walmart tent. Oh, this is how you set up your camp. There's your camp chairs. It's the fun of everybody setting up a campsite, whether it be RV or whatever. And then you got those guys with motorhomes for crying out loud. They come in there and so forth. They laugh of luxury, roughing. They're really roughing it. But they're all sukkahs. They all qualify as these temporary structures. Lionel A. Ministries, for more than 25 years, has held a Feast of Tabernacles here in Oklahoma for brethren to come. And I am pleased to say that in the course of the last 25 years within the Messianic Brethren, that sukkahs have been popping, or excuse me, Sukkot have been popping up in various states, in various locations, and now there's a multitude of places that if you want to go and enjoy the Feast of Tabernacles with other brethren, there's multiple places that you can go and join with other brethren to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And all of it is the enjoyment, the joy, if you will, of coming before the Lord, worshiping the Lord together, and having this fun camping experience. One of the reasons that God gives for why he wants us to do this is there's a commandment of remembrance associated. He wants us to remember how our ancestors, when they came out of Egypt, how they dwelled going through the wilderness. He wants us to experience, if you will, what our ancestors lived in and dwelt in, these temporary huts, these temporary places, well, the children traveled around in the wilderness before they got into the promised land. Once they got into the promised land, they built structures. They received actual houses uh, that their enemies had vacated. They actually had fields. They had everything basically set up in the promised land. But out in the wilderness, there was nothing. So you had to set up campsites, and you had to organize all of that. And psychologists tell us, that the number one bonding experience for a family with parents and children is to go camping. Apparently, in the course of doing that, 
the fathers take on the role of gatherers and hunters, and women take on the role of nesters and home builders. And so what typically happens is the man is responsible for all the things outside, gathering the firewood, getting things set up. But the wife is responsible for arranging inside the tent and making sure the tent is set up correctly and that we work together to find out how we're going to prepare our meals and how we're going to take care of one. Now, the kids, in the midst of that, they're just having a ball. They're just around having fun. And that experience, psychologists say, bonds the members of the family together. Kids with their enjoyment, mom providing the nest, dad the hunter-gatherer, and so forth. These are natural roles for men, women, and children to be a part of. Part of what God wants us to experience is coming and being out of your house, getting into a sukkah, uh, worshiping the Lord together with other brethren, doing the same thing, and the enjoyment, the natural enjoyment comes from that experience and being with other brethren doing the same thing. Because it comes in the fall, we don't have the great heat of the summer. We don't have the great cold of the winter. It's idyllic camping weather. And God has slotted and set it up for us to do this event. Now, there's a lot more to this than just camping and having a good time. There's some other things that I'm going to share with you that is very profound about why we want to keep this feast. Let me go a little bit further and tell you in the temple how they would observe this particular feast. And in Numbers chapter 29, it begins to describe to us what actually would take place in the temple. Let me read to you from Numbers chapter 29 at verse 12. Then on the 15th day of the seventh month, that's the start of the Feast of Tabernacles, you shall have a holy convocation. It's a high Sabbath. You shall do no laborious work. You shall observe a feast of the Lord for seven days. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering by fire, as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thirteen bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, one year old, with which are without defect, and their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls two-tenths for each of the two rams, a tenth for each of the fourteen lambs, and one male goat for a sin offering, besides the continual burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. The continual burnt offering is the daily offering, the daily morning lamb and the evening lamb. This tremendous amount of food that is being prepared being presented to the altar. Basically, let me share with you what would happen. They would slay the animal. They would parse it. They would put it up on the altar. They would burn it there for a little bit. It's not a whole burnt offering. They would simply burn it there for a bit, pull it off with the meat hooks, pull it down, wrap it up, and distribute that food out to everybody who had come to the feast so that all these sacrifices, they were offered to the people who had come to worship the Lord at the temple, specifically for the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a, excuse my expression, 
it was a huge barbecue. And there was other campsites, and they would continue to cook the material, but it would, every piece that came out to the people, it had been presented to the altar, it had been offered to the Lord, and now they were partaking of the meal, are you ready for this, that had come from the table of the Lord. We were all joining in with the Lord, eating from his table, because the sacrifice was done. Now, here, a very interesting thing begins to happen. Okay, so that's on the first day. Now, if you'll read further in Numbers chapter 29, when you get to verse 17, he tells you what's going to happen on the second day. It is the exact same description of what I read to you on the 13th day with one adjustment. Instead of 13 bulls, it's now 12 bulls. On the very next day, same description, but now 11 bulls. Comes down to the seventh day, and they have reduced the number of bulls by one bull each day, down to the point where we're down to seven bulls, from 13 down to seven in the course of those events. Every other sacrifice is the same every day. The lambs are the same, the goats are the same, and so forth, but they would reduce the number of bulls. The total count for the whole feast, for the number of bulls, was 70. If you do the math, it's 70 bulls that had been sacrificed. Why is that a significant number? Why, why did, would God want, in the course of the Feast of Ingathering, to go 70 bulls would be there? Well, it turns out, if you follow the teaching of Moses, you will find out that God refers to the nations of the world beyond Israel as being 70 in number. He sees 70 nations in the world. So what has happened in this Feast of Ingathering? He has offered up a bull for every nation of the world. Now that speaks to something that a lot of people don't realize about this feast. This feast is designed for all the people of the world. All nations of the world. It's not an exclusive Jewish thing. It's not exclusive to Israel. Israel is hosting so that all nations of the world can come forth. Now, there's another fascinating thing that fits into this. In the temple, they used to set up these large pillars, and at the top of the pillars, there was a fire. They would, there would be a great fire, a torch, that would be up at the top. There were four of them, and they were in the courts of Israel, and they would be standing up. And the idea was that if you came to Jerusalem and you happen to be looking over toward the temple, especially in the evening time when you're at your sukkah, you would see this great light coming from the temple that's up above the walls of the temple, even at the height of the temple, you'd see this light. And what they were doing was they were replicating when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, that we had the pillar of fire that led us in the wilderness. We dwelt in these sukkahs, and we had this pillar of fire. We had this night light, if you will, that God was providing to the whole camp of Israel. And so they're replicating this light that used to be in the journey with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And they, if you went to Jerusalem, that's what you'd see. You'd see these incredible 
light at night. You would see everybody dwelling in sukkahs, everybody waving branches, everybody rejoicing before the Lord. By the way, can you think of a better holiday for us to observe after the Messiah returns? When Messiah is supposed to come back to Jerusalem, is supposed to touch down on the Mount of Olives. Can you think of a better holiday that we could possibly observe with the Messiah once he returns? I can't think of one. Did you know Zechariah says that's exactly what we're going to do after the Messiah does touch his toe down on the Mount of Olives? Only this time, the Messiah will be the light in the temple. He will be the light that we will see coming from the temple because his presence will be there. And we will come, and by the way, right after the resurrection, we don't even have any houses. You do know that. We get resurrected. There's the day of the Lord. God cleans out the whole earth. We, we don't have a house. We're going to come to worship the Lord. Guess what we're going to be dwelling in right off the bat? A sukkah. We're going to make a sukkah. And we're going to dwell in that temporary dwelling during that holiday before we go out and re-inhabit the earth. That's a whole nother discussion with you i don't want to get too far into that but this feast of tabernacles has a lot to do with our future with regard to it let me tell you something else that we also used to do in the temple and this is absolutely profound they used to have a special ceremony on that eighth day if you were anybody who was a teacher a leader of israel if you were the king if you were any of the priests, if you were any of the teachers, the rabbis, the, before we had rabbis, you would want to be in the temple on that day. Now, to get everybody in there, not everybody could, there wasn't enough room in there for everybody to stand in the courts. What they would do is they would get up on the ramparts of the temple. They would sit up on top of the walls and they would help each other up. So the temple itself on the eighth day, there were people all over this thing in the structure, and everybody wanted to see this one ceremony that was going to take place there in the temple on the great day of the feast. Now, it specifies certain sacrifices to be done, but what you don't read in your Bible later became a temple service that was established by the priesthood. And by the way, God gave the priests, the sons of Aaron, the authority to determine exactly how all the temple procedures would be conducted. In fact, if you go and study the temple that was in Jerusalem, you will find out that this was quite an interesting logistics operation. There were certain priests that were trained for medical reasons. There were certain priests that were trained for musical reasons. There were certain priests that were trained to examine people and examine animals. There were certain priests that were trained specifically to handle the butchering process of slaughtering the sacrifices, of preparing the sacrifices, skinning the animals, doing all the different tasks besides rendering judgments for the nation. That the priesthood was a tremendous organization. In fact, they used to have a division within the priesthood and assigned orders as to when they would come and serve in the temple. And these are all well-documented things that came as a result. They're not necessarily written in your Bible, but what is written in your Bible was that Aaron and his sons were given charge of what is called the temple service. And in Romans chapter 9, 
Paul specifically says that one of the things that God gave to Israel was the temple service. And so they would establish it. When we get to this eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priesthood had established a very special procedure, a very special rite and ritual that they would do on behalf of the nation of Israel. That's the reason why all the leaders and all of those who men, important leaders of the land, they wanted to come and be a part of that. Let me explain to you what the procedure was. This is absolutely, in my opinion, amazing stuff. They would dispatch a priest from the temple with a silver pitcher. And he would leave the temple and he would go down through the city of David, down to a pool called the Pool of Siloam. By the way, in the recent news, Israel is now restoring the Pool of Siloam so that visitors can go to it. You want to know why? Because more and more tourists have found out about the Pool of Siloam and it's important having to do with the message of the Messiah and this procedure. So they would go down to the Pool of Siloam and there was water there in the pool and they would fill that silver pitcher with the water. You're gonna love this part. The water now would have a name. The name of the water is called the waters of salvation. The name was in Hebrew, Yeshua. I'm not making this up. The water were the name of Yeshua. By the way, Jesus is Yeshua. And they would say these were the waters of salvation. They would sing Isaiah chapter 12, which talks about the waters of salvation. They would sing that wonderful song that Isaiah wrote. And at the moment that he had the pitcher filled, he would then be joined by another priest who had a flute. This particular priest was called the pierced one. You see, a flute is a tube and it has holes in it, and the holes have been pierced into it. He would play the flute to lead the priest carrying the silver pitcher back up from the Pool of Siloam through the street of the city of David up into the temple again. And it was a journey that was likened unto from the earth up to heaven. The same is from the temple down to Pool of Siloam. It was a trip from heaven down to the earth. They were replicating the understanding of the Messiah shall descend and ascend, which is the greatest prophecy of the Messiah, by the way, in all of the Bible. The largest prophecy, in fact, that's described for us about the Messiah. And so the priest with the silver pitcher with the water, he's now following the priest with the flute. Have you ever heard of something called the Pied Piper? That's where it comes from. The guy with the flute leads and people follow. Okay? So they've got the Pied Piper and he's leading and he's bringing this priest with the waters of salvation up to the temple. Now, once they arrive in the temple, things get really interesting because now that priest with the silver pitcher is joined by another priest who's waiting in there who has a golden pitcher full of wine. So I have a priest that has a silver pitcher with water. I have another priest which has a golden pitcher 
of wine. These two pitchers are made to look alike, but one's gold and one's silver. These two priests now, they walk up the ramp of the great altar. They get up to the top, and it turns out they have two funnels. Actually, these are like bowls, but they have a little a drain spout that kind of looks like that, and it just hooks over the edge of the altar. And the idea is they begin, these were long neck pitchers, and they begin to pour into these little bowls that were funnels. And as they started the pouring, they would then proceed to raise the pitchers up so that everybody could see what's called the outpouring. They could see the water and the wine coming out of the pitcher, going into the funnel. And the funnel was made where they would reduce the splash, it would collect it. And then you would have these two streams coming down the side of the altar. One is water and one is wine. And they would say that this also represented the outpouring of the Spirit of God. The understanding was that the waters of salvation, the pierced one, would bring about for the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the people. And what you wanted to see was this process of this outpouring, and you wanted to see the two streams coming down the side of the altar. It's incredible, this little ceremony. It was called the water libation ceremony. In fact, this is the only time that water ever came to the altar. Water means life in all of the Middle East and in Israel, where there's water, there's life, where there's not water, there's not life. And this water ceremony that was done at the Feast of Tabernacles on the eighth day, the great day of the feast, was the thing you wanted to see. Now, it's recorded for us in John chapter 7 that Yeshua went to the Feast of Booths, he went to the Feast of Tabernacles on the day they did that ceremony. I want to read to you what it says for us in John chapter 7, beginning of verse 2. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booze, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret which he himself seeks to be knowing publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Did you hear what that says? At this particular time, even the disciples running around with the Messiah, they're not believing that he's the Messiah yet. It says it. For not even his brothers were believing in him. He had been taking them around. He'd been showing them things. They had been seeing there was a couple of them that thought he might be the Messiah, but were they really believing in him yet? The answer is no, they were not. And by the way, if you go a study that you go through all of the Gospels, even from John, where he lists only a couple of guys that begin to believe, not all the other disciples believe. I can take you all the way to Matthew 28, when the Messiah after the resurrection is giving the Great Commission. And he talked about how the 11 came with him and he gives the great, you know what it says right there? And some doubted. Some doubted. Everybody assumed that the disciples walking around, they all believe he's the Messiah. They're learning 
about him being the Messiah, but not all of them believe yet. So they're going to this, and not all of them are believing that he's the Messiah yet. So with that in mind, verse 6, So Yeshua said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves, and I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. It was dangerous for Yeshua at this time to go into the temple to be a part of this procedure. The reason is they were looking to arrest him. He had done enough, and the disciples, the reason why they're not believing yet is they're not, they're, they don't want to get arrested. They're a little hesitant. To, like, I'm hanging around this guy. It's very interesting, but if I hang around him too close, I get arrested. Have you ever seen somebody that you was interested in, but you don't want to be seen too close to them because they're doing things that could reflect on you, and you don't want people's attention on you on that regard? Well, the disciples are running around with Yeshua. As long as we're out away from the public, yeah, I want to hang around with you and hear what else you got to say. But the moment you start going into these big cities and confronting religious leaders and the civil authorities, I'm not sure I want to be standing right beside you and act like, do you remember after Yeshua was arrested? Even Peter, out of fear, denied that he knew him when they thought he might be one of the disciples of Yeshua. And Peter was probably the strongest of them all. If there's one disciple that seemed to have cut through that and believed truly and sincerely, it probably was the youngest one. It was probably John, the Apostle John. He's the one that records a lot of these things and tells us about the behavior of the disciples. Not everybody was convinced, and not everybody had the confidence to stand up there and endure whatever Yeshua was going to, because they knew he was going to get himself in trouble. And while they want to hang around and do it, they don't want to get in trouble. So they're keeping their distance. So it comes down to, he says to them, hey, I'm not going up to the feast because my time has not yet come. And I'll explain to you further what that means. So why don't you guys go up? It's an opportunity for you to go to the feast and see what's going on. So he dispatches the disciples to go to Jerusalem and to be part of the Feast of Tabernacles. But guess what happens? Yeshua on his own then sneaks into Jerusalem. And he too comes to the feast. But he does it in a way where he knows the disciples don't believe him. So the disciples are not challenged by standing with him. He goes in alone. And he goes into this feast. Let me cover this business about what is his day? What is his time? The feast of Israel that best describes what the Messiah came to do is the Feast of Redemption. That's Passover. This is tabernacles. This is the whole other end of the year. At Passover, when Yeshua came that final time, he said the following word. He said, my time has come. He was there to fulfill the Passover. He was there to fulfill the prophecies of the Lamb of God. Abraham had promised 
that God would provide the lamb himself in that place. And when Yeshua came to the Passover that last time, he was providing the lamb of God at that time at the Passover. But at Tabernacles, okay, that wasn't his time to do the work of redemption. Tabernacles is about something else. And we're going to explain that a little bit here. The Jews at the time, and by the way, this is the proper teaching, that Tabernacles is the event that depicts when we're in the kingdom. The Messiah has restored, has returned. He restored all the creation. He restored all things. All the matters of the world have been resolved, and he's now the king, and we're going to celebrate and have a season of joy and rejoicing before God in his kingdom. So everybody is thinking, fast forward, if you will, oh, yeah, when the Messiah comes, oh, yeah, he'll be doing the Lamb of God thing, but he's also going to establish his kingdom. The last time that Yeshua went up to Jerusalem, he came up through Jericho. And he, by the way, he healed a blind man there. And they asked him, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going up to Jerusalem. And it was approaching Passover at that time. And they said, oh, are you going up to establish your kingdom now? And essentially what he said was, no, I'm going up to die now. And that was complete opposite of what everybody was expecting the Messiah to do. What do you mean? Aren't you supposed to go up and you like take over? And we'll wave branches and we'll have rejoicing and so forth before you and so forth. And they said, no, I'm going up to die. I'm going up to do the work of redemption. Did that blunt the Jews that were looking for Yeshua? No. Guess what happened when he went up to the city for the Passover? Have you heard that part about the people came out waving branches? We call it Palm Sunday. They were waving leafy branches. The scripture records for us very interestingly enough here about how they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. That's what they would say in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. Hosanna means God save us. We were talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and so forth. That was what they would do in the temple at Tabernacles. But here we are, Yeshua walking up at the time of Passover. And they're doing the tabernacles things, thinking that Yeshua's going to establish his kingdom now all of a sudden. And I guess we'll do tabernacles. Well, no, that's not the plan. And the plan is laid out in the feasts and the festivals of Israel. The plan was when he went up, he's going to participate in the Passover. He's going to celebrate the feast of redemption. He's going to be the redeemer. He's going to be the Lamb of God that's slain. No, by the way, he's going to be buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then he's going to fulfill the Feast of First Fruits, the resurrection of life. That's what he was going to do. But here we have this Tabernacles Feast that we're talking about in this teaching. And in those days, they intermingled the expectations of Tabernacles when Yeshua actually came. That's the reason why they were waving branches. And, of course, the Jewish religious leaders, they saw it as, you guys are crazy. You, got, you guys are doing, you've got all this all fouled up. Don't you know branches go with tabernacles? They don't go with Passover. They were looking at the followers of Yeshua like they were nuts. 
And he came over and he, he, they told him, he said, get him to stop. What they're doing is ridiculous. That's not the way we do the feast. And you know what Yeshua said? He said, if I stop them, I tell you the stones will cry it out. Getting fast forward into the winter holiday, Hanukkah. You remember Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication? That comes to us in the December time frame. When that altar had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, they had taken the altar down. They took the stones down, and they brought in new stones to rebuild a new altar after that, and they dedicated the altar. Well, the question was, what do we do with these stones? These old stones used to be in the altar have been defiled. They've been desecrated by Gentiles. What do we do? The priest said, well, we're not quite sure what to do with them. Set them over there in the corner of the temple, and the Messiah will tell us what they're for or what to do with them. They had moved the stones over. So when Yeshua comes in there and they're saying, get the people to stop doing all this crazy tabernacle stuff at Passover, get them to stop crying out to be saved. He said, I tell you, if I stop them, those stones will cry it out. And he was making reference to that pile of stones that was sitting in the temple. Understanding these feasts and how to observe them, my friends, it will help you to understand things that Yeshua said and did with his disciples that you read in the gospel. If you don't know about these feasts and you read those things in the gospel, you just read right past the word with no understanding. These are profound things that were spoken when he came in, and they're based on the keeping of these feasts. I want to take you to the actual prophecy that Zechariah gives us that tells us about why the people thought that tabernacles is when the kingdom gets established. I'm reading to you from Zechariah chapter 14, and in verse 2 it says, I will gather all the nations against Israel to battle, and the city will be captured, and houses plundered, and the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. These are verses that are describing the great tribulation that leads to the day of the Lord. That Israel will be the bullseye of harm during the great tribulation. But the Messiah will be coming at the day of the Lord with the armies of heaven to defeat the enemies of God. Verse 14, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in middle from east to west by a very large value, so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. The ridge of the mountains in Israel are north and south. What he's saying is I will split them and separate them north from south. This is the moment that he touched his toe down. By the way, Five days before that was the day of the Lord when he had done all kinds of upheaval in the whole world and had destroyed all of his enemies. So these first three verses of Zechariah that I read to you is a quick description of the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, and now we come to the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the sequence we're looking for. He goes on to say in verse 7, for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about at evening, there will be light 
You remember me telling you about in the temple they would set up those torches so there would be light? The Messiah will be the light in Jerusalem, the light in the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you realize that we really believe that when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness out of Egypt, that pillar by day, that fire by night, you know who we think was that was the Messiah? That was a manifestation of the Messiah leading Israel out of captivity to the Promised Land. That's what God promised, that the Messiah would be the one that would lead the people. Prophecy says it very quickly. It says, my son will go down to Egypt, my son will come up out of Egypt. And we, in looking forward, to when we will all be gathering together and all making the journey to the kingdom, the promise of God, who do we think will be leading us? <laughs> the same Messiah. The very same Messiah. These verses continue on. Verse 8. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be as summer as well as in winter. A source of water shall now come forth from the temple in Jerusalem, and it will go east and west. Remember, he split the mountains, and the water is now going toward the Mediterranean Sea and toward the Dead Sea. He goes on to say, the waters in the Dead Sea, I'm sure you've heard about this, they will become fresh waters in the kingdom to the extent that there will be major fishing and events that will be take place. That part of the terrain of Israel, the Dead Sea and extending on down, is going to become a very lush place with much fresh water, many people living there, and fishing. It will be a thriving area. It comes from this verse. I love this verse, though. Verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Wow. There it is. That's going to be the first feast that we observe in the kingdom after the Messiah returns. So our fall holiday sequence, trumpets, tells us about resurrection. Atonement tells us about God's judgment that will come upon the earth. Tabernacles, the celebration with the Messiah in the kingdom. There it is, laid right out, clear as a bell. That's going to conclude our episode for this. On the next program, I'm going to continue to talk to you about the Feast of Tabernacles. And I have a lot more interesting information for you, particularly how you can be a part of Tabernacles and enjoy it as well. Even though we're still scattered in the nation, I think you'll enjoy the next program very much. I'll see you then. Shabbat Shalom.